Last week, we finished looking at a series that we have been looking at on prayer and the importance of prayer, uh, specifically referencing Jesus' instructions on how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. And today, I'd like to move into a new area of study. I want to uh, begin looking at the holiness of God. Uh, most of us think we know what it means to be holy, uh, but I'm really going to hold off to define that term holy for as long as I can. I truly don't believe that we have a good enough grasp on what it means to be holy. I don't believe that if we opened up the dictionary and read the dictionary definition of holy, that it would be an accurate depiction of what the word is, especially in reference to God's word. I feel that we, can not, that we cannot fully and correctly define the word holy until we have a better understanding of what it looks like especially in relation to God and to what the Bible has to say. So we will get to defining that word holy at a later date. For now, I want to draw your attention to the prophet Isaiah. So would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 6. As you study the lives of the prophets in the Old Testament, what you find is that Prophets were typically lonely men, and tonight, or this morning, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 6, and in a moment, we'll look at the first verse, and we'll go all the way down through the first eight verses here in Isaiah chapter 6. But what we find as we study, this, study the different prophets throughout Scripture, we find is that they were typically lonely men. Uh, prophets were given their appointment by God, and it was a lifelong appointment. It was not a position to, words to which a person could go and apply for, for it was only by divine appointment, and therefore, if it was divine, by divine appointment, it couldn't be refused. Uh, Jeremiah tried to refuse his call to be a prophet, but he was very quickly reminded that he was chosen by God to be a prophet when he was still in his mother's womb. So the earliest possible time that could be chosen for him, he was already appointed to be a prophet. As an adult, Jeremiah even tried to resign from his position as a prophet, but God also refused his resignation. There was no resigning. There was no quitting. There was no retiring with a pension. It was a lifetime appointment, and it was a difficult job, too. One of the main reasons why the job of the prophet was a lonely job was because it often involved being the bearer of bad news. Prophets were constantly delivering God's message of warning and of judgment to people that didn't want to hear it. And because of this, they didn't have many friends. Often, prophets didn't have a place to call home because they were constantly on the move. They were often asked not to come back to cities, not to come back to certain locations, and to find some other place to stay. And as we look through the Old Testament, what we find is that most of the prophets were of humble origins. You have peasants, you have farmers, you have shepherds. Isaiah, though, he stands out from the typical prophet that we see because he was a man of nobility. Isaiah was something of a recognized statesman who would have had access to the royal court of his day, which was quite unusual for who God typically chose to be a prophet. The record of Isaiah's call is perhaps the most dramatic of all such calls in the Old Testament. And this is the passage that we'll be looking at here this morning. The Bible tells us that Isaiah's call took place in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was one of the better kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. He reigned in Jerusalem for 52 years. 
while he began his reign in godliness, most of, lived most of his days really trying to honor God, his life ended on a sad note. The end of Uzziah's life was marred by the sin of pride. After he boldly entered into the temple and arrogantly claimed for himself the rights that God had given only to the priests there in the temple. And even when the priests attempted to stop him and tell them that he is way overstepping his bounds and he has crossed the line far too far, Uzziah became enraged and while he's essentially screaming at the priests and trying to put them in their place, his body immediately broke out in leprosy, specifically on his forehead, the Bible says. I want you to listen to the words of Second Chronicles chapter 26 and verse number 21. Second Chronicles 26 and verse 21, the Bible says, And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. A very sad ending to Uzziah's life. What was for the most part, a good and God-fearing life and a just God-honoring king, it ended on a very sad note. And despite the sad ending to Uzziah's life, when he died, it was a time of national mourning. This is where the story begins here in Isaiah chapter 6. As Isaiah is coming to the temple and most likely looking for some consolation in a time where the nation is mourning the loss of this king. He is looking for some, spending some personal and national grief, and he would get much more than he ever bargained for as he came to the temple here. I want you to notice what it says here in verse number one of Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. The king was dead, but when Isaiah entered the temple, he saw another king. He saw the ultimate king. The one who sits forever on the throne of the entire universe. Isaiah's eyes were opened when he saw the Lord here. He saw the real king of the nation as he saw, as the Bible says here in verse number one, God seated on the throne. Now the Bible makes it crystal clear that humans cannot and are not able to see the face of God and to live. There was an occasion back in Exodus when Moses asked to see God face to face. Moses had been an eyewitness to many of the miracles of God. He had heard the voice of God speak to him through a burning bush. He had witnessed the power of God in the many different plagues there in Egypt. He had tasted manna from heaven. He had gazed upon the pillar of cloud and the fire out in the wilderness. He had seen God part the Red Seas. He was able to walk through those parted Red Seas on dry land and then he saw as Pharaoh and his host entered that dry land as well and, the, and then were swallowed up as the waters uh, of the Red Sea were brought back. And after seeing all this, which in a lifetime, this would be an incredible thing for any of us to see. And he sees all this and he still wants to see more of God. He wanted the ultimate spiritual experience. So he asked to see God face to face. And his request was denied. But listen to what God did for him instead in Exodus chapter 33 and verses 19 to 23. Exodus 33, 19 to 23, it says, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now, following this really incredible encounter, Moses would come down from the mountain with his face just glowing with the reflection of God's glory that he was able to see. And if the people were, uh, the, the people were terrified by the sight of the reflected glory which emanated from God as the back parts of God passed by, how can anyone possibly stand to stare directly into the face of God? And yet this is the final glory of every single believer, to be able to look face to face to God. In fact, in the most famous benediction of Israel, found in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 20, 24 to 26, we find that this is indeed the desire and the hope of every single Jew. I want you to listen to what it says here in this great benediction, Numbers 6, 24 to 26, and you, you'll know that's a very familiar set of verses as soon as I start reading it. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Notice what it says. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. That is literally the hope of every single Jew. But listen to the promise for every single believer in the New Testament in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. It says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The Bible tells us that there is coming a day for every single believer where we will get to see God face to face, not as a pillar of cloud or, or a pillar of fire, not as a burning bush, but we will see him as he is in all of his glory, in all of his purity, in all of God's divine, incredible, magnificent essence. We will see him for who he truly is. Now, right now, it is impossible. Before we can ever get to see God in all of his glory, we must be purified. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he taught in Matthew 5, verse number 8. He said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Yet the Bible has just told us that no man can see God and live. So what we're told is basically that no one in this world is pure in heart. And that is why we cannot see God's face. It is our impurity that prevents us from seeing God. You see, the problem is not with our eyes. The problem is with our hearts. It is not until we're completely purified on the inside, until we're completely sanctified, which won't happen until we're in heaven, that we can see God. And notice how Isaiah further describes the vision of the Lord here now in verse number 2, Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Now, we have just described why human beings cannot look upon God and live. And here in verse number 2 of Isaiah chapter 6, we have angelic beings described as also having to cover their faces as they're there in the presence of the Lord. Did you see that again? Look at verses 1 and 2 one more time. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above that the seraphims each one had six wings with twain he covered his face with twain he covered his feet with twain he did fly even the angels in the presence of God it says they're covering their face 
As they're in the presence of the Lord, they have to cover their faces to shield their eyes from the awesome majesty and the glory on the face of God. Another set of wings, it says, is used to cover their feet, acknowledging that they also, angels, are also created beings in the exalted presence of the Creator God. Now, if you remember, just like when Moses appeared before God, as Jesus, God appeared before Moses in the burning bush, God told him that the ground upon which he stood was holy ground. Any ground before the presence of the Lord is immediately holy. And thus the seraphim here in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse number 2 show the respect and honor to God as they approached him with reverence and fear, acknowledging his holiness and their position of humility before him. Now verse 3 is where we get to the most important part of this passage. The seraphim sing a song about the Lord. And I want you to notice what they sing here in verse number 3. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I've titled the message here this morning, The Thrice Holy God, based on what it says here in verse number 3 of Isaiah chapter 6. The Thrice Holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is truly an incredible verse. When we wish to emphasize the importance of something in the English language, we might underline it, we might underline it, we might put an exclamation point at the end of it, we might use italics, we might use bold print if we're typing, maybe even include quotation marks, just to do anything we can to distinguish it from every other part of a sentence or a paragraph, whatever it is that we, we may be writing. And all of these are used really to get the reader's attention that whatever is being mentioned is of extreme importance. One such device in the Hebrew language is the use of repetition. In fact, Jews were so accustomed to this practice, we see it quite a bit in the New Testament, as Jesus would often speak saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Whenever you see that, verily, verily, the use of repetition, it's, you need to start paying attention. And not that anything else he said wasn't important, but when he repeated himself, this is really of extreme significance. It tells you that you should really pay, pay close attention because what is about to be said, what is about to be declared is of the utmost significance. So if it is significant when something is repeated twice, the level of significance just continues to increase the more it is repeated. If something's repeated three times, then it's even more significant. In all of Scripture, there is only one attribute of God, one attribute of God that is repeated three times. And we see it happen twice. We see it happen here in Isaiah chapter 6, verse number 3. And we see it happen in the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. And in that context, you have the four beasts who are circled around the throne of God. So another similar instance. Seraphim here around the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4, as the apostle John is given a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. He sees four beasts in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, circled around the throne of God, declaring the same thing. And the Bible says of them in Revelation chapter 4 that they ceased not day and night to declare and, and worship God by declaring, saying, Holy, 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 Lord Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Revelation 4, 8. Isaiah 6.3, the only time that we see an attribute of God repeated three times. Now, the Bible doesn't say that God is love, 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 or that God is mercy, 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 or that God is just, 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 or that God is wrath, 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 or any other attribute that we can think of. What the Bible does say is that God is holy, 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 and that the whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to notice what we see in verse number four also. It says, And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, 
and the house was filled with smoke. Are you starting to see and understand what's happening here in this great description? This is really an incredible scene being described before us. Now, I know that some of you might, thinking, might be thinking that I'm just crazy, that it's just, there's not all that much happening here, but there is. You may be thinking I'm, I'm a little bit of a nerd um, because I'm kind of excited about this, and I want you to nerd out with me for a few minutes, okay? Just go with me down this train of thought. As I was reading through this passage this week, I, I felt incredibly guilty and incredibly humiliated. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, the best definition of humility I ever heard was this. He says, to think rightly of ourselves. When you are a half an inch above the ground, you are a half an inch too high. Your place, he said, is to be nothing. Now, as I read this passage here in Isaiah chapter 6, as I read it this week, I felt incredibly convicted. And I want you to see what was happening here in this passage. I want you to see, just really see what's happening. I know we read the verses and, oh yeah, okay, the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. But really understand what it was like to be Isaiah as he came into the temple there this day, saw what is described there in verse number one, the Lord sitting upon the throne, saw what was described in verse number two, the seraphim there above the throne with six wings, two wings covering their eyes, two wings they're flying, and two wings they're covering their feet. And, and then they're crying this incredible song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then to see what's happening with inanimate objects there in the temple. It's incredible as you read about what is happening. The, the, the temple itself, the building itself, Verse number four tells us, was overcome with reverential awe in its deepest foundations, and it's filled with smoke, the Bible says. There wasn't a smoke machine that someone just turned on in the back of the temple and said, all right, now is the time for the smoke to emanate. No, this is just happening at the sheer presence of God there in the temple. It's an unbelievable scene. There, there was a, a recent survey that was taken of people who used to be church members. That mentioned the main reason they stopped attending church was that they found church to be boring. Some people find it difficult to find worship thrilling and exciting. The Bible tells us here in verse number four that inanimate objects, the building, the posts of the door, it says, were finding the worship of God thrilling and exciting. To the point that they are moving, that they are trembling, that they are shaking where they are. Inanimate objects. Are you seeing this with me? When's the last time you've seen an inanimate object move aside from an earthquake? I'll wait. You've never seen it happen because it doesn't happen. Inanimate objects, there's a reason they don't move. They're inanimate. They don't have life. They don't have the capability. They don't have the functionality to move. God has not gifted them that way. If I saw an inanimate, inanimate object move, I'd be terrified. I'd be terrified. Isaiah describes here the scene. As he sees all of this grandeur and glory of God here in the temple. And to the point that the temple itself begins to tremble. The posts of the door moved. And in case you're wondering, that is not a, a fancy Hebrew word for anything else other than what it says. Moved. It moved. The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with the smoke. This is an unbelievable scene. So back to that study. 
Recent studies show that many people refuse to come to church. They stop coming to church because they no longer found church thrilling and exciting. And here we have this description where the building itself of the temple found the worship of God so thrilling and exciting that it could not contain itself. It began to move. It had sense enough to move by the presence of God. I want to notice verse number five. Isaiah says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, that is all capital, the Lord of hosts. This is where, as I mentioned, reading through this passage this week, feeling convicted, feeling humiliated, feeling guilty, this is where my conviction really set in as I read this verse. This is where I truly felt less than an inch tall. At this point, it wasn't only the posts of the door that were trembling. The thing that trembled the most now in the building was Isaiah himself. The only thing he could do was cry out, Woe is me, he says. Woe is me. Now, I want you, I want you to get excited about this text with me. And I kind of really brought you down, but I want you to get excited about this with me. But even more so, I want you to realize how awesome our God really is. Some people will look at this passage and they'll be completely unfazed. Heard it a million times. We know what happened there. I could describe it to you without even looking at the Bible. They'll chalk it up as an, an incredible vision that Isaiah had. Just leave it at that without drawing any sort of application to ourselves. Now, I'm not going to take a survey. I'm not going to ask all of you what, uh, how you think you're attending church, if you're excited about attending church, if your experience in church is thrilling. Frankly, I wouldn't want you to lie to me. Do you know why attending church becomes boring? Do you, want, do you know why it is no longer thrilling and exciting for people to attend church? And I'm not talking about attending any service at a building that has a church sign but an actual church that stands upon the word of God and boldly proclaims his truth. What makes attending a church boring? When we continue to attend without recognizing that every time we come to church, we are coming before the presence of the Almighty God. That is what makes attending church boring. When we forget that as we come to this building that is a Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church, we are coming before the presence of the Almighty God. When we start approaching God without fear, when we start approaching God without reverence, when we're attending church this way, that it's just something we do on Sundays at 1045 and Sundays at 6 p.m. and on Wednesdays at 7 p.m., this is just what we do, then it will become really boring to you very quick. Now, I'm not saying that we need to all be crawling into church crying and trembling in fear, but when was the last time any of you came to church and really let the Word of God penetrate your heart to the point that you could see the glory of God and felt like Isaiah here in verse number 5, Woe is me, I am undone. Most of us end up treating church more like something we just have to sit through before we can get through the rest of our day. And by the time we're in our car driving home, we've already forgotten about what the sermon was, much less what passage was preached on. Now, I'm not going to stand before you and tell you that I am always approaching the presence of God the right way. As I sat in my office preparing this message, again, I was deeply convicted for my lack of fear, for my lack of reverence to the Lord. I had to stop. 
I had to stop and pray and ask God for forgiveness because I'm reading these words and more than just words on a page, they were speaking to me in a clear way that I was just completely feeling like Isaiah was in verse number five, undone, undone. I don't think we come before the Lord appropriately as often as we should. I don't think we attend church as often as we should with the right mindset. Many times the, the preacher uh, seems to be standing before his congregation and their lunch reservations. And, and while I joke at times, there's a lot of truth to that. In many instances, church attendance has become a matter of convenience. And even though we're here physically, our bodies are occupying seats, mentally we're somewhere else. Mentally, we're on what happened yesterday or what happened this past week or where we need to go after this and, and what we're going to eat for lunch and everything else that is going to happen either the rest of today or next week or whatever it is that is weighing on our minds before we came in. We're physically here, but mentally we're elsewhere. And so we get nothing at all from the message and nothing at all from God. And that's why only few of us really understand the significance of approaching the presence of God the right way. Few are actually here because they want to be here. Few are actually here because they're truly coming with the desire to approach God and to be in his presence. And this is why many of us are completely unmoved when we come across a, a verse like this in verse number five, where Isaiah is crying out. He says, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I am undone. This is not a modern cry. This is not a modern cry. We're too busy critiquing this sermon. We're too busy picking apart all of the preacher's grammatical errors, and I'm giving you plenty. We're nitpicking on how long a pastor preaches. We can sit through a two-and-a-half-hour-long movie, but a 45-minute sermon, man, you're really asking a lot. You're really pushing it. Gone is the understanding that we're coming before the Almighty God every time we open His Word and proclaim His truth. The cry of Isaiah is not a modern cry. This is an old-fashioned, this is an archaic cry, and the reason is because we think that the problem is never us. But it's with the preacher. If you're attending a faithful Bible-believing Bible and Bible-preaching church, and you're not excited about coming to church, the problem is not the preacher, the problem is you. Notice Isaiah's cry again in verse number 5. He says, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Do you see what he's saying here? He's not upset with the message of the seraphim. Holy, 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 verse number three, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He's not upset with that. He's not even upset at the scene before him. He's pronouncing the judgment of God upon himself. Woe is me. The word woe, Whenever you see it in Scripture, was a pronouncement of doom. When Isaiah declared, woe is me, he was recognizing his absolute and complete unworthiness before God. And thus he calls down the curse of God upon himself. The judgment of God, he's calling it down to fall upon himself who deserved to be destroyed for his lack of reverence and lack of fear of God. That is why Isaiah followed with the words, I am undone. Woe is me for I am undone. To be undone, it literally means to be coming apart at the seams. So he's describing himself as basically disintegrating before God. Isaiah may have been a man of nobility, 
May have, been, may, may have been a man of high stature in the community, but here in the temple before the presence of God, his entire self-esteem has been shattered. It was as if God turned the light on. And now Isaiah was able to see who he really is before a thrice holy God, and he sees nothing. He sees nothing. He was considered a righteous man by all of his contemporaries. But a sudden glimpse of a holy God and his position before a holy God, he's now broken. He is now broken. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to another person, he would be able to have a high and lofty opinion of himself. But the moment he measured himself against the absolute perfect standard, perfection of God, and the glory that he sees there in the temple, morally and spiritually, he is just annihilated. He's destroyed. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity, pride, self-esteem, his high self-image, all of it collapsed. All of this was a good thing, though. What's interesting is that this sudden realization of his ruin led him to examine his mouth. Notice verse 5 again. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I am a man of unclean lips. Now, you may be thinking, this may sound a little strange here. Perhaps we would have expected him to say that he was a man of unclean habits or unclean practices, but not necessarily unclean lips. I want you to listen to how the Bible describes the tongue in James chapter 3 and verses 6 through 12. James 3 verses 6 through 12, it says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith blessed we God, even the Father, and therewith cursed we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh." So as Isaiah stood and he examined himself against the perfect holiness of God, the thrice holy God whose presence he is before here in the temple, he realized just how poisonous, just how evil his speech was. And he also acknowledged that he was not alone in this, but that the entire nation, he says, was guilty of having unclean lips. Uh, unclean lips again. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's amazing how in the matter of a few moments, Isaiah has a radically completely different outlook on sin. All of a sudden, things that were previously acceptable to him become detestable to him. I wonder what would change. What would change with us if the Lord revealed himself the way he did to Isaiah? If we came to church and the scene that Isaiah saw is a scene that we saw, what would change in us? God seems to reveal our sinful condition to us gradually. And thus we have more of a gradual recognition of our wretched condition. Little by little, we're finding out more detestable things about ourselves. God showed Isaiah all of his corruption at once. It was like at once he turned the light on. At once he just pulled the wool off from his eyes and he sees all of it immediately in one, one fell swoop. 
So it's no wonder that he felt, as he describes here in verse number five, completely undone. Look at how verse number five ends again. It says, And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the holiness of God. And for the first time in his life, he began to understand who God is. And for the first time in his life, Isaiah began to understand how sinful he was before this thrice holy God. And notice what this new understanding led Isaiah to do in verses 6 and 7. It says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. I imagine that Isaiah's feeling of being undone led him to fall to the floor. And this is just my speculation, but if he's truly undone, and that word undone literally means to come apart at the seams, to be disintegrated. You can't be disintegrated. You can't be apart at the seams and still be standing. So I know this may be speculation and maybe me reading into the scripture here a little bit, but I honestly believe that he has fallen on the ground here at this point when he has declared himself to be you know, woeful and to be undone. And honestly, what other position could he be in before the thrice holy God than to be face first on the ground? So with my interpretation being that he is probably on the ground here, recognizing his sinful condition and his wretched condition before the holy God, most likely has left him looking for a place to hide from the presence of God, knowing that he is deserving of judgment. If you put yourself in Isaiah's shoes here, and he's just witnessed all that he's witnessed, he has acknowledged all that he's acknowledged about himself because the Lord has showed him who he is. You're going to look for some place to go. You're going to look for some place to run. You're going to try and get away because you know now that you are woeful, now that you are undone, now that you are completely sinful and deserving of nothing but judgment, judgment is coming. And so you're going to do everything you can to get out of the presence of the thrice holy God who is the one who's going to bring judgment upon you. And he's got nowhere to go. He has nowhere to hide, and he's stuck there alone before God. He was feeling miserable, as verse 5 tells us. His heart was destroyed as he understood his position before God, and just nothing but guilt was consuming him. But what Isaiah experienced in these two verses here, in verses 6 and 7, was the immense grace of God. The immense grace of God. God refused to allow his servant to continue without comfort. God immediately brought cleansing and restoration to Isaiah's soul as one of the seraphim is seen flying to him, having a hot coal and laying it upon Isaiah's mouth. This was an intense act of mercy, a painful act of cleansing as those hot coals are upon his lips. As Isaiah was refined by fire, God was purifying those unclean lips. He was cleansing him entirely. He had forgiven him to the core, but not without the awful pain of guilt. Isaiah was in mourning for his sin. He was overcome by his guilt, and God sent him an angel to help him. All the conviction that Isaiah was feeling was completely necessary and completely constructive. This prophet who had felt completely undone, disintegrated, annihilated, was now whole. His mouth was purged. He was made clean. And now notice what we see in verse number 8. Verse number 8 says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. This is where things changed for Isaiah. 
Up to this point, Isaiah had seen the glory of God. He had seen the seraphim. He had heard them singing about the holiness of God. He had felt the burning coal upon his mouth. But now he hears the voice of God. And God asked him a very piercing question. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? There is a pattern here that is repeated in how the Lord works. God generally reveals himself. People tremble before him. God offers forgiveness and then God offers healing. God prepares and then God sends. God's pattern is to bring man from brokenness and uselessness to be ready for his mission. Isaiah understood that God was sending him to be a spokesman. God was looking for a volunteer to enter the lonely and the grueling office of a prophet. And notice how Isaiah responded in verse number 8. At the end of verse number 8, God says, Who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. I want you to notice that there is a drastic difference between Isaiah responding by saying, he says, Here am I, and say, as opposed to saying, Here I am. Now you're thinking, well, that's just changing two words as far as their construction and sentences and change anything at all. But there's a drastic difference between him saying, here am I, as opposed to saying, here I am. Had Isaiah simply responded by saying, here I am, he would have merely indicated to God his location. But Isaiah was interested in so much more than just letting God know where he was geographically. He was interested in being God's spokesman, God's spokesman and God's servant. And that is why he responded by saying, here am I, send me. There are two things that are worth pointing out about Isaiah's reply to God. And first, God had been the one to equip Isaiah. God equipped Isaiah. Isaiah was broken. Isaiah was undone. But God put him together and equipped him for this use. God was able to take a man who was shattered, who was destroyed, who was useless, who was broken, who was undone. In his own recollection, in his own acknowledgement, undone, good for nothing. And God was able to equip him for service and for the ministry. God took a man with unclean lips and transformed him into his mouthpiece. God equipped Isaiah. Second, God's work on Isaiah did not destroy his personal identity. God's work on Isaiah did not destroy his personal identity. Isaiah was still able to respond, here am I. After everything God did to him, he was still Isaiah. He still had his own identity. He still had his own personality. Isaiah didn't leave that temple as a new human being. He still had his personal identity. He was still Isaiah. He still had his same fingerprints. He still had his same look about him, but he was now clean. He was now God's instrument. I think this concept is very important for us to understand because many believers consider themselves ill-equipped to share and proclaim God's gospel, to share and proclaim the gospel of truth to people, to go where God is calling them to go because they think, well, I'm not equipped to do this. I'm not ready to do this. I'm undone. I'm broken. I'm useless. Because honestly, they still possess the same personal identity from when they were unsaved. They think, well, I'm still this person. So I'm really not ready to do what all this is that God's calling me to do. Being a minister of the gospel always makes you vulnerable to the charge of hypocrisy. I think in all honesty, the more faithfully that you are proclaiming the gospel, the more diligently that you're sharing God's word, 
the more liable you are to be called a hypocrite. And I think that's a lot of why a lot of people refuse to do it because they think, well, if people find out about who I really am and I'm sharing the gospel over here, they're going to call me a hypocrite. Guess what? The more faithful you're preaching God's word, the more opportunities you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to be called a hypocrite. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I'd rather be called a hypocrite because I'm proclaiming the name of Christ than to not be called a hypocrite at all and just blend in. You should be called a hypocrite. Are any of you perfect when you preach the gospel? No way! Do any of you change to the shining eminent being when you're proclaiming God's truth that there is nothing bad about you? No, your identity stays the same. You're still the same person, but God has transformed you on the inside to bring his truth out of you as you're now his mouthpiece. The more liable you are to be called a hypocrite when you're preaching God's word, and here's why. The more, the more that people are faithful to the word of God, the higher the message is that they will be proclaiming. The higher the message, the further they will be from obeying it themselves. Are you catching this? Just because we're preaching what the Bible says doesn't mean that we're actually living it out every single day. We should be trying to. But it doesn't mean that we're living it out every single day to the very letter of the law. If you came and looked at my house, which I'm not going to let you do it, you'd call me a hypocrite within 10 minutes. More times than what I care to admit, as I preach stuff like this, I feel like I'm preaching to myself than I'm preaching to anyone else. I feel undone. I feel undone as I preach God's word. Just because pastors stand before congregations and preach the word of God does not mean that they have mastered the word of God and they're living it out perfectly in their lives. Over the course of the week, as I'm preparing my sermons, God is working on me through the passage that I plan on preaching on. And I promise you, there are plenty of occasions where I actually start to preach the message on Sunday morning and God shows me something that he hasn't shown me all week. Something that brings conviction and leads me to seek his forgiveness. So often we think that the pastor's job is to minister to the congregation, but God is, offering minister, God is often ministering to pastors through their own preaching. Because no matter how much experience a pastor may have, whenever he is brought before the uncompromising truth of God's word, the feeling is the same of Isaiah's. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. That is why it is so hard for me to take a compliment on my sermon or my preaching. There are many days where I feel completely ill-equipped to be standing before anyone, delivering a message from God's word, and I wonder how anyone will get any, anything at all from this sermon. Honest pastors, honest pastors will admit that we probably feel more like Humpty Dumpty than we feel like Isaiah. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. If you remember, had a great fall. All the king's men, all the king's horses, they couldn't put Humpty back together again because when we preach, when we do anything, we feel completely undone and not restored as Isaiah felt at the end of this passage that we looked at. Isaiah was undone until the Lord put him together and equipped him. The holiness of God is such that when you open up God's word and you begin to proclaim it, it starts to work on you by destroying you. Sometimes it chips away little by little. Either way, it's going to bring you to have a great fall. I don't want to discourage anyone. I don't want to discourage anyone from telling a pastor that you appreciate the sermon, do you appreciate the message, but the best thing you can do is to let the message work on you and change you the same way it did him over the course of the week.
We don't preach to you because we're looking for your praise or for you to even think of us as holy because that's never going to happen. Many times as you compliment our, our preaching as pastors, on the inside we're crying out, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Because for the last 30 to 45 minutes of our preaching, the Lord was breaking us down as well. Isaiah cried that he was a man of unclean lips, not because in that moment he was saying something that he shouldn't be saying, but because what had become normal, what had become acceptable to him outside the temple was unclean. Most people, including pastors, can do at least a fairly good job of at least appearing clean and put together while they're before people in church. But the truth is that all of us are undone because we are all men and women of unclean lips. There are plenty of things in my life that I am ashamed of. I am a profane man who spends more time outside of God's house than I do inside of God's house. But I have had just enough of the taste of the majesty and the glory and the holiness of God to want more of it. I know what it means to be a forgiven man. I know by the grace and the mercy of God that he has sent me on a mission. I know that my soul continues to need this refreshing and nurturing from day to day, the strength it needs from God from day to day, and it daily my soul cries for more of God. As we gaze here this morning into the majesty, into the holiness of God and his word, as it reveals to us, as it did to Isaiah, the true nature of ourselves in comparison to the thrice holy God, being undone, being individuals of unclean lips, may we receive his healing. May we accept God's mission, and may we daily praise and worship our thrice holy God. Would you bow before me in prayer, before the Lord here in prayer as we close this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for being our God. Lord, I know that if we look at this passage and understand what your servant Isaiah went through, Lord, that we would all realize just how unworthy we are to even approach you. I know, Lord, that the things that we do, the things that we say, even the things that we think, Lord, are often more profane than holy and godly. I pray for myself, Lord. I pray for the things that I've failed you in. Lord, lacking that fear of you and that reverence of you as I approach you in your house, as I approach you in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would help me be the example as, Lord, pastoral staff here at Latham Bible Baptist Church, the example that others need to follow after, but, Lord, not an example of perfectness because I know I'll never be, but an example of a, a man who is broken and undone but is desiring, Lord, to honor you and to praise you for all that you are. Lord, help us all together as a congregation, as a body of believers, all of us recognizing how much we have fallen short of your glory, how much we fail you from day to day. Help us, Lord, in this struggle to at least be struggling with our eyes focused on you, with our desires, Lord, being to honor you, to come before your presence, Lord, with humility, reverence, and fear to get to the point, Lord, where coming to church will once again be thrilling and exciting because we recognize, Lord, that it is you that we're coming to hear from. Work on our hearts. And Lord, may we have a, a new perspective, a new outlook on who we are in your eyes and how you ought to be approached. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.